0: Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive, and scuba new news. Scuba Obsessed episode 345 is recorded live October 12th, 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson, coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where day is turning into night way too early. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you.
0: And we also have Kevin Ailes. How how are you doing today, Kevin?
1: Darren, I'm doing most
2: excellent. How about yourself?
0: I am doing great. This is some beautiful weather we have. A, a little bit chilly, but as my dad used to say, great work and weather. And uh, having a good time with it. Uh, so still, uh, Mac, would you say it is still wetsuit season, or is it time to break out the dry suit?
1: Well, it was a little chilly tonight, so I actually did put an undergarment down, a long sleeve, under the vest, uh, but still got an hour plus. But the river is starting to get a little chilly, and it's starting to get a little leafy.
0: Ah, if yes. you got the
1: newsletter, you know what I'm talking about.
0: Yes, we are getting a little bit of leaves starting to come down uh if you're wanting to tour michigan especially the south side from now on out it's just going to get more and more color and i'm sure as you head north it's going to have turned farther if we get a really heavy rain or a really strong wind those leaves will come down at a much more rapid pace all my i call them the the kind of trash trees the poplars and those type that lose their leaves early uh those are about half down already and I noticed this last weekend that the maples, the ones that are out by themselves and not next to the others, the tips have started to turn color. So uh, it won't be long now. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have, uh, let's see, uh, TKD Derek. He's, he's in there and others will be coming on. What we're doing for chat room is we're using Discord. We have uh, links to it on the website to find out how you can get into the Discord channel. We're still using TalkShoe for the live audio, but I'm planning on moving to something else or the Discord as soon as we can get those uh, last few technical note uh, decisions worked out. But let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article up is a recall. Sunto's are calling the Sunto wireless tank pressure transmitters, tank PODs, because of an injury hazard. According to the U.S. Customer Product Safety Commission, the exterior plastic cases for the wireless tank transmitter and wireless tank POD can burst during pre-dive pressure testing in two reported incidents. Transmitters burst during dry land pressure testing, and there's been one report of uh, bruising. The affected products include the Sunto wireless tank pressure transmitter, reference numbers SS01909800. And nine seven zero zero zero. The transmitter has a black cone-shaped plastic case with Sunto Finland printed on the top of the case and a transparent or black plastic base. The diameter is about four centimeters, or uh, and uh, length is about eight centimeters. And they have the Sunto Tank POD. Uh, reference number is SS zero two zero three zero six. 000 Sunto Tank Pod. The Sunto Tank Pod is a black shaped comb plastic with Sunto Tank Pod made in, in Finland, printed in gray color in a case and a transparent plastic base. Diameter again is about 4 centimeters and the length is about 8 centimeters. The products are sold nationwide at retailers specializing in scuba diving equipment from October 2003 to April 2017 for about $440. All consumers are urged to immediately stop using the wireless tank transmitter and tank POD and return them to the Sunto dealer Sunto authorized service center for free inspection and repair.
2: Mm, I'm wondering, I you know that the, the DIR-compliant divers don't use a uh, wireless uh, pressure gauge. They're all uh, analog only. So I'm sure the uh, Global Underwater Explorers League and the uh, DUI people are going to be all that DUI. Huh? DIR people, excuse me, DIR is, do, is a do it right uh, publication put out by Global Underwater Explorers. Underwater explorers. Um, they're all, do not use these things for other reasons, due to reliability. Yeah.
0: Well, anytime uh, you add some complexity, complexity, you take that into account. Um, uh-huh. I'm not so much sure that this is from the nature of it being complex, other than it's just uh, anytime you have any sort of new product that you manufacture, uh, there is a risk for something that you didn't account for, or test for. In this case, mm-hmm. it looks like that's what they've discovered, and they've done what they need to do. They track it and uh, do a recall.
2: I don't; these are very popular. I mean, not just the Suntos but you know the Oceanics, and mm-hmm. um, even like uh, Shearwater recently came out with the uh, wireless transmitter for their their, uh, their, uh, their petrol series. But mm-hmm. they uh, they're very, you know, it, it, they are convenient. It is really nice to just look at your uh, back computer. You know, at any glance, now you see your tank pressure, so you're not going to have to focus on the second gauge now. Yeah, But well, uh, well it's, it's a lot of it's opinion, you know. I mean, do you want to have the old analog style, which is considered to be most reliable now, or do you want the convenience? So, well, I uh, think
0: what we're going to see, if we can fast forward uh, 10, 15 years in the dive equipment, I'm thinking that this will actually be a safety feature, these wireless transmitters uh you i've already seen i think we've covered uh, i don't know mac do you remember what the equipment was there's that one company that had the uh, wireless communication system and that was a feature they were adding is that not only are you able to see your pressure on your your dive console but you can also see your buddies
1: i don't remember that one myself i keep thinking of technology like that as the cost and mm-hmm. The analog is not, and if you want to get more people diving and you want to lower the cost, I would stick with simple. You know,
0: I oh. I, I agree with you, but the the just the way that technology is moving, that cost is going to – the reason a lot of this cost is, for one thing, it's new and you're trying to recover your development, R&D, uh, but then also is the, is the individual components. But they're going to come down. Uh, I'm looking at well, some – go ahead. And,
2: and they, they are getting – more accepted too. I know. I say. I know that the DIR is still against them, but we're even seeing in the rebreather community now where people are using these on their O2 on their, their diluent bottles now. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, there have been some big names out there who are recommending the being, using these on the rebreather now. I haven't gone that route. Yeah. Uh, but some are. Well, uh, I'm, I'm kind of sitting back and waiting to see. You know how How long they keep on holding that is, is a good idea to do before I jump on it
0: you know i'm I'm just thinking You imagine you're uh, a dive charter operator in you know you've got two dive masters taking down eight certified divers. you could have a, a console and you could see you know everybody's dive uh, pressure right there.
2: Yeah, but then, I don't know, does, does that encourage complacency amongst the divers now? Because, oh, well, I'm going to watch my tank pressure. My dive master's watching that. Um, actually, uh, T.K. Derek is mentioning that in the chat room right now about there being a uh, uh, – there was a thing on the dive boat so they could monitor the air for all the people in the water. So, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's a nice additional backup, but then, I don't know, then then if somebody gets hurt and runs out of air, we were just talking about earlier, you know, yep. before the show, uh, you know, you're responsible for what you do yeah but now you've just added on another layer of responsibility for the boat staff so now when someone runs out of air are they going to blame it on themselves or are they going to blame it on the on the um on the boat staff because they didn't watch their air for them you know um water can you say okay you're running out of air you gotta go so I don't
1: how do know. you tell them if they're underwater and they're running out of air you're on the boat they're running out of air because oh, they don't look at their own. Yeah,
0: yeah the, the, on, the, on the surface, I don't think that's going to help, other than saying, oh, wow. Uh, I mean, you could use it just to kind of predict when somebody's going to come up.
2: Well, he's yeah. okay, well, we can see that uh, Diver C has been out of air for about 15 minutes. Think we got to contact EMS? Yeah, maybe. <laughs>
0: with... <laughs> well, yeah. but the, the thing is, and I haven't done many trips where we've I've been down south with charters and big groups, but from what I understand is that the the tour operators are doing that anyway. You know they're stopping the group and they're you know doing a signal and you know how much do you got? Uh, I, r- I remember hearing stories of uh, Bonterra Mine yeah, where I they do that bonter. yeah so you know th- yeah it's it's something that could be used but it doesn't have to be and uh, so uh, but yeah so that that's it. Uh, it. Always make sure that you're checking on your gear, especially if you have not been diving in a while. Uh, to see if there have been any uh, been recalls, because there's recalls uh, probably twice a month on different sorts of gear. So you want to make sure, that, and that's something that also your dive shop, as you're having your stuff uh, maintained and serviced, uh, should also be checking on.
2: Well, you know, I guess if you're using one of these, you know, you still, you're an experienced diver, you know, is basically only looking at the gauge to verify, because you kind of have an idea as to, where it should be because you should have checked it within the last two minutes anyway. Mm-hmm. So got a mental note. Okay. I last looked at it. It was, you know, 2,600, you know, it's been two minutes. So now it shouldn't be you know, more than like 20, 2,400 now. Um, uh, you know, you, you're just verifying, but if you're <clears throat> sitting there at 2,600, wow, I must be good on my air. I it's been 2,600 the last half an hour. <laughs> yeah. You probably, you, you probably got a problem. You probably got a problem. So, I don't know. um, no, you know, they are convenient. I, I do have an Oceanic that I, I used for a while, which has one of these. And, and you know, it, it is really nice just to glance at your wrist and you got it all, all right there in front of you. No more hunting for your console. But, I don't know. I mean, uh, I kind of drank some of the DIR Kool-Aid and, uh, you know, they're all adamant about, uh, you know, you need to have an analog gauge and that's to follow up on. And,
1: you know, it needs to be hooked
2: up with a brass fitting on, on this particular D-ring on your BCD and da 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 you know. So, um that's
0: what I go with. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and that's just different approaches. It's, uh, uh, next article is talking about the USS Kittywaite, the shipwreck. Um, we had some hurricanes come through that area, and there were some concerns that the wreck could be unsafe. Uh, I guess the hurricanes uh, jostled it quite a bit. Um, it's been certified safe for divers, but they're saying it, it may not be doing so well for the reef. It was toppled by heavy seas and is now laying on its side wedged against a section of the reef close to another uh, dive site known as Sand Chute. A chunk of the reef was chipped off as uh, the 2,200 ton wreck shifted position reigniting fears it could move again in future storms, causing more significant damage. Department of Environment said that the statement the impact in the recent incident was minimal and it would not seek compensation, but previous storms have shifted the wreck more than 50 feet from its original resting place in the shallow, shallow sandy bottom off Seven Mile Beach and has now posed much greater threat to the reef. A moment such as has been observed at the Kitty Kittiway is not completely unexpected during the storm event, the Department of Environment said in a statement. This is why the DOE is consistently recommended against placement of artificial reefs and other objects on the seabed around the Cayman Islands. As our extremely narrow marine shelf, it is very difficult to place these structures at any safe distance from a living reef. Further damage of the reef is likely and would be futile to seek to restore the damaged sections which are confined by a 3 by 5 meter area, the statement indicates. Although no longer touching the reef, the ship currently lies very close to and future contact with the reef can be expected with other large storm events. This suggests that the repair of the identified damage is not advisable at this stage. Department of Environment said it would work with the Cayman Island Tourism Association to monitor the site. CITA advised Tuesday that it had commissioned an examination of the wreck and given an all-clear for water sports operators to resume snorkeling and dive trips. The official assessment report, as of Monday afternoon, indicates the moorings are safe for boats to tie up to, and visitors are still able to see the entire wreck from the surface, hence making the visibility an interesting spot for uh, snorkeling. Uh, Association is advising scuba diver operators to ensure their staff dive the site first without customers to get used to the new layout before guiding visitors kind of goes back to uh, us talking about the uh, uh, liability again.
2: Yeah. Well, that's always going to be, a, be a, an issue when it comes to the diving, unfortunately. So, no, I'm not saying it's right, but that's always going to be a question. Well, but the question I have, though, is that, you know, when these wrecks are, I, I'm assuming this wasn't intentionally uh, sunk wreck.
0: Yes. Yeah, this was, uh, I believe it was done by, and we could look it up, the uh, tourism down okay. there.
2: They were talking about seeking compensation from someone because of the damage it did there. So I guess someone apparently is liable for, you know, yeah. the, for the shipwreck. But then I thought that a lot of your naturalists really like these shipwrecks because they end up becoming habitats for fish, and and you know, eventually the coral takes these over as well. So I mean, that,
0: that's what the, I, that's what I thought when I saw this is that corals are going to be growing on that, and before you know it, it's going to be a bigger reef than. Uh, the natural reef. So I was a little surprised. Now it may be just the the layout of the Cayman Islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it just that there's such an upwelling there with a with a narrow shelf that you can't secure a vessel adequately?
2: Well, that and I mean, okay, so it, it broke off a portion of the reef, but I mean, does that necessarily kill the reef? Because that's you know, I mean, the, the, the reef, it's not like a circulation system. I understand there are different corals that do well at different depths and all that. So yeah, you can have a coral that does well at, you know, at 20 feet, you know, do well at 200 feet, of course. But, uh, well, and it's some, some well, I gather. Uh, but just because you broke off a portion of it doesn't mean that portion that's broken off is now a dead portion. It just means it's, it's, it's injured and some corals have died because of it. But, you know, this stuff does regenerate to some extent, I understand.
0: So. Yeah, it's, it's not clear. Uh, I have an idea that some of this is coming out of uh, one group said no, another group said yes, and the yes side won, so now the no side's going to uh, kind of bring it up anytime anything goes
1: to prove their point.
2: Ah, uh, okay. Uh, You're saying the uh, yes side and no side when it came to uh, putting the wreck putting the there? Yeah.
1: yeah. That was pretty recent. It was sunk in 2011.
0: Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, next. Story we have is divers keen to know the Tobruk site. This is a final resting place of the former Australian Navy ship HMAS Tobruk will soon be announced by the government. Well, it's common knowledge a ship will be scuttled in Harvey Bay as a wrecks site. Uh, The exact location is yet to be made. It is vital the government gets it right, just like it did for choosing the site of the HMAS Brisbane off the Sunshine Coast, the X HMS. Tobruk must not be sunk in waters that are tidal and have strong currents. That would be detrimental to divers' safety. A final decision also has to be made regarding the maximum depth of the ship. At present, this impressive ship is moored at the port of Bungenburg, where extensive work has begun to make her environmentally safe before sinking. Strict conditions have been imposed by the authorities, so the ship poses no hazard for scuba divers. All the ship's compartments and openings must be a size that will ensure no diver can be trapped while swimming inside. Hopefully, the dive site will become very popular to divers in the future. <clears throat> well, why are they even putting the wreck down there if you're going to make it completely safe? We just put three pictures of a boat on the bottom and say this is what it could have been.
2: Well, that's their procedure. That's wow. going to go along with. It,
1: so. Yeah, that's a landing ship. It's called a, well LSH, a landing ship heavy of the Royal Navy. She's uh, 127 meters in length, 18.3 meters beam. and If she were not sinking, she'd be uh, drafting 4.9 meters of water.
2: That that would be a marvelous dive site. There's one of those up in Muskegon you can tour, one of those LSTs. And, yeah, with those huge open bays, uh, that that would be an, an excellent ship to for uh, you know, people who want to penetrate a wreck, I mean, you, you get that humongous you know opening to let you know tanks and all kinds of vehicles in and out of them. There, that's that's a good that's a good vessel for that. I like that.
1: Right. They call it the massive barn door bow doors, and mm-hmm. if you see a picture of the wreck or the ship itself, it's quite interesting. So you, you said Muskegon has one of those?
2: Yeah, Muskegon has an LST that you can tour there. Uh, it's one of their museum ships. That's oh. oh it's not real far from the silverside. It's on that same side of the river, but I want to say closer to downtown. Okay. But, yeah, there, there's an LST there, there and it's, it's all, you know, a lot of staff that are re, uh, retired veterans mm-hmm. that will tell you all about about an operation. It's all oh. been restored and painted and pretty and all inside, and they so get us a museum inside it. And
0: So yeah. they'd be upset if I kind of snuck in with a tugboat and pulled it out and it somehow found its way to the bottom?
2: You know, you've got a whole bunch of veterans in there, I want to see you try it, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good luck crew. with that one. You're going to
0: be tough and wiry. I think I, I might not yep. be able to accomplish that. Uh, uh,
2: so some of these guys, I'm sure, you know, combat veterans, go for it, Darren. <laughs> They're
0: just I waiting. Mean, yep. So I, I shouldn't wear my uh, my Halloween Kim Jong-un mask when I do that.
1: Probably not a good thing. You, you just got a death
2: wish, don't you, man? <laughs> I mean, well, if you're going to do it, let, let, let me make sure... Let me know so I can film it for YouTube here, Harold. Okay? Yeah, so, so I mean, maybe
0: maybe I got the the Kim Jong-un mask, and then I also get a, a Vladimir Putin, you know, on the backside. So, you know, they just kind of do it all upright.
2: Well, you you just go right ahead and do that, Darren, and you just might find out exactly where Jimmy Hoffa was was stuck out in Lake Michigan, too. So there you Ooh, go.
0: look at these. These are these are some nice cement shoes.
2: Yeah. You know, get them sized up before you go, my friend.
0: Yeah. So it would be almost kind of like living in this uh, next town, uh, the Lake Minnewanka dive sites. This is a Canadian lake that has an underwater ghost town that uh, scuba divers happen to like. Uh, it's inside the Banff National Park in Alberta, uh, rests Lake Minnewanka. I'm thinking yeah, Will- think Willy might- Wonka.
2: I think this link has changed here, guys. I go to pull this link up, and now we're getting, oh, my mistake, okay. <laughs> oh, this is not on the one that's back My mistake. Go ahead, guys. Ignore me. Ignore yeah, me. I'm just the, rambling.
0: Yeah. Um, the body of water that is uh, 13 miles in length hides uh, a secret beneath a surface that you need scuba gear to see. Back in the day in the late 1800s, Lake Minnewanka was known as a summer resort of sorts for folks living in nearby Calgary. Eventually, small lodging with the size of a hotel grew to become a bustling hamlet with cottage houses, hotels, and restaurants. Good times wouldn't last forever. In 1912, a portion of the landing was flooded due to construction of a new dam for a nearby hydroelectric plant. Then in 1941, a new dam was built, raising water levels 98 feet and completely submerging Minnewanka Landing. Ever since it is... Uh, Boy, sometimes I have a hard time reading. Ever since, all that can really be seen in Lake Minnewaka, but for the remnants of the Minnewaka Landing, can still be found explored beneath the body of water. Uh, The lake has actually preserved the building and structures quite well. Ice-cold water preserves it to the point where, with scuba gear, you can swim into the hotels and houses of the former landing. Uh, in fact, there's about 8,000 scuba divers that head to the waters of Lake Minnewonka each year to do just that. And then they've got some videos uh, showing what they have. And then I we also have a, a link to another website which lists all the buildings and what you can find into them and, and how deep they are. So they've got, uh, what about, uh, just under 20 structures that they've got listed. And some of them are uh, foundations, uh Sidewalk and a cellar, house foundation, outhouse, hole, uh, with some wharfs, and then a the dam area. Huh. Well, they say you can go in the houses, but uh, this one website's not showing any of those.
2: Yeah, I'm not seeing pictures of everything underwater.
0: Yeah. Now, I, haven't, I haven't had a chance to watch the videos. My bandwidth, I do that, and we'll shut everything down. But you know, The article talks about you can swim in the buildings, but this other website, this other link just talks about the... Uh, just foundations. Mm-hmm. Mac, have you have you heard of anybody diving up here?
1: Oh, I haven't. I was starting to look for the pictures for you. But, uh, no, it sounds quite interesting. I'm sort of curious how long it's been that way. If you'll remember when uh, they started flooding the valleys down there in the, in the mountains, mm-hmm. Dale Holler used to be a place maybe 35, 40 years ago we could go to. and uh, When they flooded the valley, we'd have towns, to go through, churches and stuff, but most of those, not most all of them have collapsed now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's why I'm curious how old these are and why are they in better shape.
0: Yeah. Well, they're saying it's because of the cold water, and uh, some of these, I think it depends on uh, the different areas, but some of them haven't been flooded all that long, or relatively speaking, 60 years versus, you know, over 100
2: well, it my manner, you know, how, how deep it is, too, it sounds like one of these, you know, uh, the water went up by 95 feet in one step, and, you know, we, we see on the river that when you got, the, the, the deeper you go, the less the current is, generally. So, you know, you got a section of the river, which is now 95 feet deep. Actually, it's in a lake now, mm-hmm. so that there can't be a real strong current going through there, except possibly in the spring during, during the thaw. So I'm sure, uh, I'm, I'm sure that the, the depth of it, how well it's held up
0: too. Yeah, I'm just scanning through, looking at some of these uh, listings of what they describe on them.
2: Um, yeah, i the dam they put up in 1941 raised it by 100 feet, and, you know, that's quite substantial.
1: I'm looking at some of the pictures for that. Their visibility is interesting. I'm looking at one where they're in an airplane. Yep. Awesome. An airplane? Yeah, Yeah, an they airplane? must have other items. Well, there's an airplane there too. Did somebody? That's not good for. <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> is is this is that something that somebody sank just to kind of create more dive opportunities in the area?
1: I'm quite sure that's true. Okay.
0: Yeah, because one of the websites is actually Parks Canada, which is their government website to show listings of the parks. Uh,
1: now for yeah, was, a, for a warning,
0: was, go ahead.
1: I was going to say I was just looking at that a little bit. They have special ice diving items there. you got to get a permit to go ice diving. But the thickness of the ice seems to be rather substantial there.
2: Yeah, we're talking Canada. There's got to be some healthy ice.
1: It's a little north, yeah.
2: Okay. What are we getting for, for ice, Mr. Mac?
1: I'm just looking at the picture, and I swear to gosh, that's at least three feet thick.
2: get need a bigger chainsaw than I got for that.
1: Uh, yeah, or cut smaller pieces, and you just stack them out. You have a stair step down. So it's easier to get up and down. Wow. that
0: That's hardy. I have to admit, if you're you're doing that. Um, now, at what depth do you put a warning saying that, be cautious, this is deep?
2: Well, you know, when we do ice dives, you know, we're not usually going much deeper than, what, 40 feet? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, of course, we're doing a tethered and all that stuff, too. Uh, you know, adding up the depths here, you know, I mean, in one step alone, it raised it by 100 feet. I mean, you're talking some substantial depth ice dives here. Uh, well, I, I can see why you're going to get permission and permitted and all that, because, I mean, that's that's a lot more ice diving than we do around here. I mean, well, not to say people can't, but people just don't.
1: So. There's another little feature here. So said that lake is 1,450 meters above sea level. Oh, So now we're talking into a different dive table than oh, yes. normal. We're talking high altitude oh, yeah. diving. So said it's 18 yeah. kilo, uh, kilometers long, maximum depth, 100 meters, 300 feet. Wow. And if you're out there and you destroy, damage, remove any prehistoric or historic artifacts or structures, you're looking at a straight-off-the-bat $2,000 fine. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, it's nice they're protecting their dive site like that. I mean, hopefully this will be around for quite a while. I I mean, I wonder how, how strong of a dive community they have up there.
1: Yeah, they were saying their visibility fluctuates depending on the time of the year, which is normal and the number of divers at the site. <laughs> yeah. Just just like you said, just like Gilboa but Well, says, yeah,
2: but I, but I doubt they have
0: many open waters up there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it says the depth vary uh, depending on the time of year, and it rises, meaning the the, the visibility, up to 18 feet in sometimes. So it doesn't seem like it's the greatest vis. Uh, hmm.
2: Up to 18 feet? Not, not yeah. 18 meters, but up to 18 feet. Yeah, that's uh, not...
1: Yeah, 10 meters well, eight,
2: eight, up to 18 meters so
1: oh, okay. no no five point5 meters 18 feet okay okay yeah uh,
2: that, no. if that's the high end of it that's I mean so you're doing an ice dive uh, I wonder where those steps are though is that like in, in the deeper section where they're talking hundred and you know 100 plus feet to the bottom or is that in a more shallow area where they're doing that because I don't know that, that sounds pretty extreme to be doing an ice dive that poor visibility at that kind of depth. I mean, uh, unless you're tethered, that's going to be. I mean, wow. But thanks, no. I'm good. I'll, I'll watch the videos on YouTube.
0: And then we have one more article. This is the Mallows Bay Ghost Fleet, graveyard where nature is riven. Ridden. Riven? Why did I say riven? Risen from the dead. Um. They were built to sail across the Atlantic Ocean to aid the effort in World War I, but wound up unused, abandoned, stripped, and finally scuttled. Almost a century on, the ghost fleet of Mallows Bay and Potomac River, 30 miles south of Washington, D.C., is positively brimming with life again. Nature has taken hold amid the rotting hulls and rusted bows, and scores of historic vessels, with flora and fauna indicating the areas where sailors and passengers once stood. It has become a really amazing mecca for wildlife, Joe Dunn, president and CEO of Chesapeake Conservancy, uh, told CNN, if you've got these osprey nests in front of the boats and heron rookeries, bats breeding in the hulls of ships, it's really which wildlife and historic location? Located near Nanjemoy in uh, Charles County, Maryland, Mallows Bay is not only treasured by locals, it could be in the brink of wider recognition thanks to efforts to designate it a National Marine Sanctuary. It is on two sites. The other is on Lake Michigan and Wisconsin, being considered for sanctuary status by NOAA, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. The announcement made by President Obama in October 2015 was the first time since 2000 that an official nomination for National Marine Sanctuary status had been made. A successful Mallows Bay will join 14 existing ecological havens, including the Florida Keys and Thunder Bay in Lake Huron, one of the five Great Lakes where nearly 100 vessels have been discovered to date, earning it the nickname Shipwreck Shipwreck Alley. Uh, I took some folks from NOAA down there, and they were stunned when they saw the place. Uh, Don... Showmet, uh told CNN, we have 158, 100, I said 158, 185 archaeological documented shipwrecks in a 14-square-mile area, which makes it one of the most densely populated places in the Western world for historic vessels.
2: Now, are these, is this the uh, Liberty Ship graveyard I've heard about? There was an area, in this area, Liberty Ships were vessels during World War II designed to uh, get cargoes quickly to... Europe, they were churning out these boats very quickly. They weren't anything graceful or durable. They figured if they got to Europe once, that was their goal. Um, they weren't especially seaworthy vessels, but at the end of World War II, there were a tremendous amount of them in, in construction, which were not completed, which were just abandoned. And I'm wondering if this is the graveyard for the Liberty ships I've heard about.
0: Min-
1: this uh, this here started uh, the ships out there were from World War One. Okay.
0: Yeah, it says uh, in April 1917, uh, two out of four ships leaving Britain, France, or Italian ports was being sunk. So they. So the process of continuing the war was going to go in Germany's favor. Germany's tactic of unrestricted submarine warfare targeted not just military vessels but merchant and passenger ships too. The HMS Lusitania torpedoed in May 1915 it was the most high-profile sinking, uh killing 1200 on board, 10% of them American.
2: Okay, maybe I guess the war room, maybe it was World War 1 not World War 2, but yeah, I wonder if these are the Liberty ships though.
0: Yeah, well, this is this is a variety. I think there's there's stuff in here because uh, they have a steel-hulled ferry in 1928. Yeah, yeah. So this is just the area where, uh, and I don't know if it was if this was a mothballed fleet, you know, where the, we'll just keep it here, but we may need it later. And of course, nobody's going to spend money or time on it. And eventually, they just that just that first picture, that top one in the article, and you see them sitting there. I mean, they're they're all kind of rafted together. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. it you, you think that I But
2: the story of them sounds very much like the Liberty Ship program because they're they're trying to get supplies into Europe which to you know when stuff is being torpedoed uh thought Liberty ships were World War 1 I now, I, mean, I thought Liberty ships were World War 2 not World War 1 but but it might have been a precursor to the Liberty Ship program. Yeah,
0: well, there, there's I think they've they've reused that name. Let me see. Uh we we've got access to the the great yeah, Liberty ships
2: for World War II. I'm seeing here actually. This this might have been um, a, the World War One equivalent of the Liberty ships from World War Two. That's got to be what it was. Same idea because you're trying to get supplies into Europe. Uh, you know, around all the uh, U-boat packs out there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very similar to the Liberty ship program, but it's for World War One. I. I didn't realize they had that pro- that project. It's not called Liberty ships, but it's no. It, it, it's the same idea. You know, they are building ships in mass with the idea of getting supplies into uh, Europe, and they're not—they're uh, not—they're not real glamorous ships. But yeah, they—they they are war. I mean, they're, and they're not armed. They're, they're cargo ships. But all right, yeah. Well, this is a—you uh, know—I mean, a, it, it has a wartime connection to it, a huge wartime connection to it. So it's certainly very much a worthwhile place to preserve. Sure.
0: Yeah, they said we had to create from nothing a shipping industry that was going to build a 1,000 wooden vessel ships in 18 months. Normally that would take a year and a half to build a wooden steamship.
2: Yeah, and they weren't built, you know, very heavy duty. They, they kind of figured if they got there with the cargo, the ship it's just its purpose. And um, they weren't really designed to do multiple crossings, the Atlantic. There, but I, I'm yeah. sure if they made it, they sent them back and got more.
0: At Hogs Island in Pennsylvania, one of three major steel shipyards built by the government, 50 shipways extended for a mile and a quarter down the Delaware River at its peak, 30,000 strong workforces launching vessels every five to six days. Contracts to build wooden cargo ships were sent out to shipyards across the U.S. There were eight different designs ranging between 270 and 300 feet. Nearly 400 were completed before the end of the war in November 1918. A handful were sold, some finding work as ferry, ferrying cargo up and down the Pacific coast in South America. But for longer, transatlantic ships are considered uneconomical because of their size. They could only carry around uh, 1,800 tons of freight. So this was just purely a war effort of let's build as much as we can, as quick as we can, and uh, through brute force uh, try and uh, overcome I said 1922, majority were sold to this, for a song to the Western Marine and Salvage Company, which set about stripping out reusable metals and parts before burning and sinking the remains. The company went bust at the start of the Great Depression in 1929, and Wildcat Scout, uh, salvagers moved to pick away at the scraps in the early 1940s. Bethlehem Steel, America's largest shipbuilder at the time, set about what proved to be another doomed salvage operation. Vessels have slowly slipped away, nature's grass in some place completely consumed, almost unidentifiable. At low tide, you'll see these forests of things sticking up in the north end of the bay. It looks like a shore, but it's ships about astern, about astern, I call these flowerpot ships. Each of these ships has become islands. Some have trees 30 to 40 feet tall. It's very exotic. Just beautiful.
1: Just let Mother Nature take care of them, huh? Preserve the ships for everybody. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I mean, all, what you're what you're doing is it's it's kind of like, it, it, it's like nature's version of a uh, fossilization, you know, at some point you're just seeing, you know, it it held material together that plants could seed on. Then you're actually seeing the, uh, that, which is remnants of what used to be the ship. So beautiful. I find it interesting. Uh, Interesting article. We've only covered about a quarter of it. So you'll want to head into our show notes and and take a peek.
1: As uh, for grins and giggles, I did send you both uh, on Skype Mm-hmm. a video of scuba diving in the lake, and one day they were doing some uh, archaeological recovery. Uh, the scuba diving in the lake, uh, very green and very low-vis. It's
2: only because I haven't edited the pictures. Let me take care of that stuff. <laughs> hmm.
0: Yeah. I yeah, just do a little color correction.
2: Uh, we should talk about editing pictures sometime. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the software that's out there now, Mm-hmm. You'd be amazed what you can salvage now. No, I. Oh yeah, I, I've yeah. been going. I am so glad that I didn't throw away all those crappy pictures I took as a first year diver. Okay, Because yeah. uh, if you got something which is in focus, yes, you, could, you can save it. You you you'd be as long as it's in focus, you'd be amazed what you can do with some color correction, bringing up the contrast. I mean, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah if if you if you've got good software uh, and you know, like I use Photoshop, which is probably the most common. There's literally nothing you can't do to the photos from a color uh, perspective. I mean, I can I can make it look like a carnival. I can make it look natural. I can, you know, all sorts of things that you can do to that.
2: You you, you can double the visibility, yeah. I mean, very often. As long as you have decent light down there, yeah. the camera will, will see more than you see. And yeah. you know, as long as you get good light and even in crappy visibility... You'd be amazed what you can bring out.
0: Yeah. Now, we, we talk about photos. Uh, Adobe makes a really good piece of software called Adobe Premiere, and they also have, uh, which is for video editing, and they have Adobe After Effects, which is for uh, you know, special effects and uh, graphics and uh, images on, in the video. But you combine that software together and you know what you're doing. That same color correction that you did to your photos, you can ap- apply that to the video. And achieve uh-huh. the same results. Uh, people who know how to write the like the little scripts and routines to do that can just do some amazing things. In fact, that's a, you know, some of your your movie companies will do the same thing: color profiling cool. and,
2: and 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 much of what you want to do with the pictures. You don't even need any real fancy software for. Uh, you know, just the actual photo viewer on your phone. Uh, you, it generally has options for some color correction. Uh, you know. Basically, it's, it's in the saturation. You know, if if you have something in the toolbar for saturation, you can play with that and you can knock down the green, knock down the blue. Uh, generally got options in there for bumping the contrast. You have options in there for, if you can knock down the highlights, that takes up the hot spots, or at least reduces them anyway. Uh, one problem you have is that, uh, on the phone's smaller screen, you often don't really see exactly what is happening to the picture. Yeah. And then you go and you put the picture on your computer or your desktop. You're know, like, oh, crap, I way overdid that. You know, I mean, it, It'll look quite different often when it's seen you know, on, on a larger screen. Yeah.
0: But, yeah. We're, we're are still,
1: you edit, are editing, editing JPEG or a RAW photos? Uh,
2: ed, editing J, uh, JPEG or BMP. Um, okay.
0: Yeah. No, raw, I, RAW will give you better results, but you also lose a ton of. Space you have to weigh. Do I want that moderately better uh, ability to edit?
2: You know, for the layman, you really you know raw is kind of overkill for most people. Uh, It's a it's enough more of a challenge to process and handle and view than the traditional JPEG. That unless you're doing this professionally, it's really in my humble opinion not worth the hassle playing with raw I, mean, I you know had cameras which would shoot in both and I would always end up falling back on the JPEG image just because I could do what I needed with that you know yeah you, you can do more with the raw but it's just you know for the common person it's it's more than you need it, I mean the, the, it's it, it, it's a pain in the butt to work with it yeah. so uh, stick with the JPEG I mean your your phone will recognize it you gonna put a raw picture on your phone And unless you have a different uh, editor, it's not even going to display.
1: It's
2: it's just much easier Just stick with the JPEG.
1: Yeah, my only comment from the aspect of RAW is if you go to a lot of the photo clubs in this area, for example, those people take taking photographs seriously. But if you look at the original photo versus the end product, you're not a photographer. You're an artist. because they're making the picture look like they want it to look like. And not that it's not a great picture when they finish. It's not what they took. They manually edited it and maneuvered it to be, I mean, absolutely gorgeous.
0: Yeah. The the, the thing with that is that even though we didn't have the digital tools 20, 30 years ago that we do now, that same type of editing was still going on. If you ever get a chance to look at what uh, professional photographers were doing in the darkroom, Um, you know, they would do things called dodging and, and, uh, covering and doing double Mm -hmm. exposures. So they were doing all this stuff to get that image they wanted. Uh, so they were doing the same type of techniques. They were just doing it in an analog way. Um, so even though on one hand, you know, people will say, well, that's not exactly what it looked like, but the, the artist will say, but I, that's what I was going for when I took the image. And that's the difference between the professional photographer and then a lot of us who are just, you know, I'm going to shoot 2,000 images hoping that I got eight of them. <laughs> that I, I look back later and go, oh, I kind of like that one. Where, yeah, but,
2: you, but oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. I'm yeah, where, wrong
0: where, wrong. where some of the, uh, you know, the, uh, so in some extreme uh, cases, there are professional photographers who they'll set up a scene and only take one shot. Yeah, you know, It's like they they'll do the, you know, they might spend an hour and you know, not, I'm not talking underwater, but uh, you know, on the surface and you know, they'll, they'll take the one image and, and you look at some of the stuff that like we, uh, some, some people we've talked about before, uh, Jitka and then Becky, uh, you know, they do some amazing shots, but there's some, there's some setup involved when they're getting those, you know, you got people off, uh, off camera who are, who are lighting the rack and, yeah, you know, they they know how to the angle they want to take and when they want to take it. And
2: uh. well, you know, it's as far as doing the editing. Um, and I do want to mention uh, TK Derek is talking about using uh, VividFix, and uh, that, that that's some good software too. I went to a uh, workshop at Our World Underwater last year about that, and then they were really pumping up VividFix. And what what the lady was doing that was was just incredible. But she was doing an awful lot of what you're referring to, as far as you know, the final product really did not resemble too much what she, she started with, then you got to realize that, you know, your brain already installs a filter when you're no. down there. How many times have you taken a picture when you're down there and you come back up and you're thinking, crap, there's no way it was that green down there. There's just no way. I mean, but then, you know, actually, I've, many times now that since I've got that, I've been really looking at my screen and looking at what's what's, what's being taken down there and realizing that, you no, know, actually, it probably was even more green. It's just the camera's already screening some of it out naturally do the software in it. Yeah. And what is that? Because you're so inundated with a strong green, or in salt water, it's just strong blue that your brain is actually already kind of putting a filter over yes. it. Yes. So, you know, like, you know how when you smell something so much you can't smell it anymore. Well, when you see something so much,
0: yeah, yeah. If you if you take your you know, your your you know, say your workshop downstairs, and you install nothing but yellow light in there. Uh, so you, you work really, there for an hour, you'll you'll think that's perfectly normal.
2: Yeah, so that there's really nothing wrong with doing some modification because you know what what is truly down there. I mean, because your your brain has filtered so much out, and then you know we as experienced divers, you know, we look at it and like automatically we pick out that hey that hunk of broken wood there. That's part of the bow. So. Our brain is already assembling a boat, which the novice might not even recognize as being a boat. So, you know, where do you? you know, there are some purists that say, "Yeah, you should never raw. You should never edit. You just take what's down there, and that's what you display." And then other people who are. You know, putting all kinds of interpretation and changing colors and, you know, making the fish look like they're something completely different because all the color changes and, you know, turning them in the, you know, putting the filters on and, you know, making it look like it's, it's a sepia picture or mm-hmm. it's a cartoon or, a, you know, all kinds of different things they can do with it there. And I think the important part in the end is, you know, to have something which you can look back and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it is edited, okay, that's fine. I mean, um, you know, where is the limit as to how far you're going to edit? That's kind of up
0: to you. So it, it depends on what your purpose is. Is your purpose down there to accurately document? I mean, are you doing archaeological work and you want to document it? And even so, I think you could make a case for uh, correcting. Uh, but you may take a more scientific approach. You might take a color, uh, what do they call that, target down there, And so that you know what to correct it to. Uh, to to get to the the accurate of how it would be if it was uh fully lit uh i'm i'm seeing that a lot of it it wasn't too long ago where many cameras came with filters uh, that you would change as you went down deeper to uh, uh, compensate for the the changes in light but now they're saying don't put any filters on because what you're doing is you're actually reducing the uh, the light that's getting there and with what you can do with simple software now it's just better to to let it go all natural, get as much light to your sensors as possible, and then correct it later.
2: Yeah, particularly with these smaller cameras. I mean, yeah, well, everyone's using these, uh, you know, the GoPros and the different offshoots of them down there. Um, you know, they do great things with software, but they're very limited as far as the uh, size of the sensor. And mm-hmm. at that, at that size of the sensor is what's going to capture the photons, which makes a picture. Although, time and time again, once you start editing, you'll realize that the camera will see a lot that you didn't see. Yeah. So when you're doing your editing and your correction, now you're not necessarily editing, you know, correcting it to what your eyes saw. You're you're correcting it to what the camera eyes saw. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, once you start, you know, knocking down the hot spots, you know, you will see so many features, so much more distance than you really thought. Um, I know you guys have both seen that picture I took recently on the Ironsides, and uh you know it shows you know 100 foot visibility down there on, a, on a, in a in a october dive uh that picture didn't start out that way you know there has been some editing on that picture i mean uh i did not add anything to it all i did was subtract you know i i took away some color and sharpened a little bit and uh knocked down some hot spots that's all i did to that baby yeah. and you know I, I maybe i should post to the original alongside that but you know uh do you, do you want to see exactly what you saw, or do you, or do you want to see the wreck? You know, yeah. which, 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 which way do you want
0: to go on this? So. yeah, I'm looking forward to what we're going to see in the next, i say it's going to be as short as four or five years. Uh, cameras are going to continue to improve. If you look at what Google has done with their newest phone, what that's actually doing now is they'll take as many as 10, 10 pictures in less than a second and then they'll combine those together they've actually looked at improving the quality of the sensor to be more light sensitive and they've determined that through software they actually have a better result in just taking pictures rapidly together uh, so i think we're going to start seeing uh, you know because that's that's fairly cutting edge stuff that they're doing now and it's it's because you've got a a computer which is a phone but as that starts moving into the camera we're going to see uh similar well, improvements
2: well it's- nice to see the uh, you know a a a phone doing that but uh that is a feature which has been around for a little while i know that my my canon t5i has that feature where it'll 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 combine the shots
0: yeah that that's the the hdr but uh you know most of the frequently hdr uh it was just two images yeah now you're seeing that uh they're going they're going to extremes of how many they do and what they're doing and when you think about uh an underwater shot uh, if you could hold it fairly steady and you had the, enough of the uh, uh, processing to handle it, you know, some of that backscatter that we see, you know, that submerged particulate, uh, you could actually erase that from the image.
2: Yeah, there is, you can, but, you know, there are ways to get around that. You know, I mean, as long as you have a you know, relatively wide array, so you're just not lighting up the backscatter right in front of the lens. But that's why you, when you see... Uh, you know the equipment that you know, like Becky Kagan Scott or Yaga Ye- yeah. Hanika, or uh, you know these different folks who are taking these really good pictures we're seeing online. You know, uh, you know, you know Rick Sass. You know, uh, some of his stuff has been bought up by National Geographic too. Uh, you know, but they've got like a, a four foot or, or larger array. You know, so that they're getting the light so far away from the lens that mm-hmm. by the time it lit up, it's such a small particle that the lenses is, is the lens is going to focus on. The largest, well, the most visible object in the field, you yeah. know, and as long as it's not the crap in front of the lens, uh, you're going, you're not going to see it.
0: Yeah, but but that that kind of gets back to the point of, you know, that's the professionals who are taking the time to invest in the gear and to set up the shot and to do that type of effort versus somebody who's going to grab their their GoPro style camera and just go down and take some some shots mm-hmm. and hopefully they have something that they like.
2: Well, and then you got to realize that. You know, the average diver is not going to want to haul down that, even if it wasn't the budget. I mean, carrying around that, you know, I don't know, 30-pound setup down there, uh, you know, and with all the bulkiness of it and the, and, and the expense of it, it, it's just not something which most divers are going to do. Uh You know, my recommendation would be to put together something very easy, very basic, something which you can, uh, you know, you your roll over and not worry about a getting fouled on things or your, or your buddy kicking it out of your hands or something there, something you can, you know, carabiner to your, to your rig. And if you do lose it, it's not going to, you're you not looking at a few paychecks floating away going there. You know, you're mm-hmm. looking at, okay, that's a GoPro. It sucks. But I'm getting another one for a couple hundred bucks, you know? Yeah. So, okay. And I mean, and have it, have it with you all the time because you never know when those good shots are going to pop up, you know?
0: So. <sighs> well, I think that does it for scuba in the news. We'll shut that down. Anybody get any good diving in the last week or so?
2: I've had a few. I mean I, actually I was gone for two weeks, so um had a handful. No, um did a bunch of diving down Indiana one a little search hunting project going on down there and bouncing bounced a lot of targets down there and that was kinda cool. Um I don't know, uh been really working on my search and recovery skills. I've been um playing with the side-scan sonar, running a little bit better and uh, just using it to uh, identify targets and we don't see what they are. So uh, I don't know if you guys saw the picture I took on the Sides two weeks ago. Um, yeah. Three dives that day. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I was supposed to be the diver at uh, Triathlon they had on Battle Creek, the uh, x Terra Challenge, um, you know, swimming section, uh, a uh, mountain bike and a run. Happy to say I didn't actually go diving at the Xterra triathlon because that would have been going to recover somebody, which you didn't have to do that. So I was kind of glad to go diving there, but got the call to go, uh, recover the buoy off the iron side. I'm part of the, uh, the, state buoy team and, uh, so official buoying, I think I was we going to pull in that day as so we got that in all the way. That was a pretty good dive that day, although I dove that in my, in my, my semi dry and, uh, was not prepared for the upwelling we had because we had some ex- exceptionally cold water down there. I was anticipating the water being, you know, in the 40s, being the first day of October. And, uh, no, it was about 36 degrees down there. <laughs> and I'm going to semi-dry, which still translate as a, as a wetsuit. And uh, I've
0: been hanging around for very long. So. How about you, Mac? Did you get anything, get wet a few well, times?
1: Well, the river has the been pretty good uh, with all the rain we had this week. Uh, I was surprised how well the visibility was tonight. Still, average five to ten, depending on where you're at. And in reference to somebody else, uh, the water is definitely getting chillier. So you're probably going to feel really good to get out after about an hour and a half. The darkness is coming very quickly. Uh, the people out there tonight had lights on their uh, either their flags, the pencil lights, or they had little not strobes, but they had the uh, flares on their on their floats. Lots and lots of fish, and the leaves are starting to collect. And you know what I mean by the leaves on the side yes. now. A yeah. uh, couple of more weeks after that big, you know, windstorm and hailstorm, we're going to get eventually. All those leaves are going to pack the bottom. You're not going to see anything. So we'll be probably ceasing to dive the river when that happens. But right now, good hunting is out there.
0: Does anybody find anything interesting in the last week
1: or so? Uh, Jim did not post it yet, but he found a little honey hole. Uh, Last week, I believe it was, where he found a extremely nice glass locomotive no oh. hmm. that had not a single ding crack scratch <laughs> on it that was freaking buried, and uh with it were all the bottles. I think he is shifting his perspective now and he's going to start collecting medicines. I
0: saw yeah. that I saw that he was going to start uh medicine I mean because that's kind of what you have to get into your collecting is. Focus on one thing because with the the pickings that we have around here, you can easily fill a house.
1: Well, like tonight, I mean, I, I brought back a few items strictly to give away, you know, to to our friend who is selling them. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, but you know, if I find a really nice embossed Milk, I'm bringing it up. And I found a couple of those from Chicago even, which were older wow. and they had rims on them. And, uh, you know, I said, do not reuse. It has to be are required to be reused. Really nice embossing, and found a few like that. Oh, wow. And uh, cool. Cool. Adam was out there tonight. He hadn't been diving a lot this year, but he came out last night or today. Um, got the obligatory golf ball, so we were, wow. we were illegal. But this is probably the first time that I've had every finger and parts of my body nipped by the freaking fish.
0: <laughs> so, so you want to keep anything that you don't want bitten tucked in away.
1: Well, you're not going to be dangling out there in the summer, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you're you're going to be wishing you didn't. But but still startled the heck out of me. I'm down there and all of a sudden they're attacking my body. It's like a man, a piranha, you know, uh, something. But it was fun. Uh, again, just about the time you get out, it is dark. So you need to get there by 5 and get out by 730 right now. And it'll mm. still be dark when you finish.
0: Yeah, we don't have much time yet before we start hitting maximum darkness. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: just that time of year. So.
1: Yeah. As a yeah, side we- note, though, I would like to bring up a couple of items. Sure. Um, it's, it's a little late to be publicizing it, but the Great, Le- uh, Great Lakes Wrecking Crew, their fall meet is this week, and the 13th and 15th through the 15th at Gilboa. So if anybody planned, I think Bob was going to go to that. So yeah, let's Bob
2: Bob's on there, and I think Lusinski's down there. We've got a handful of recruiters. Yeah, of I,
0: I think Bob may already be down there because there was some challenge in in reserving spots that they the certain spots weren't going to be reserved, so they're they're going down and just grabbing them up and preserving them by being there.
1: Oh yeah, um, if you're interested and have the opportunity, the Dima Show the 41st is. November the 1st through the 4th in Orlando. Uh, the Mud Turkey Dive right now is scheduled for November 25th. Still not determined if we're going to be in the uh, St. Joe River or the Niles River at this time. And, of course, the Mud Club New Year's Gathering and Dive is December 31st. And if you haven't put it on your schedule, uh, it's also in the club newsletter this month. Is Our World Underwater it is going to be February the 17th and 18th. The Upper Midwest Scuba Adventure Travel Show, and that's in Duluth, Minnesota, if you're going that far. That's March 3rd. The Great Lakes Shipwreck Festival down in Ann Arbor, that is March 3rd. Also, the Go Ships in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the date is unconfirmed as of this date. I mean, right now it's not confirmed. They know they're going to have it, but they haven't uh, established a date.
2: I understand the Go I understand that Ghost Ships is looking for a new location, and that's why they haven't got a date yet.
1: And other than that, the Mysteries and Histories of Shipwreck, the uh, the normal show in Holland, that's going to be the March twenty fourth from MSRA. So that'll be on the club schedule. It'll be on the uh, club site. So at least we got some dates we can start scheduling. Yeah. So March is going to be busy.
2: Yeah, and this has been a you know an exceptional year for finding uh, wrecks. You know, I'm really anxious to see, uh, you know, David Trotter's got his, a presentation on the, uh, Clinton that he, uh, found this year. Uh, you know, we're going to have the information, I'm sure, from the, uh, about finding, uh, you know, that the, the, uh, Choctaw and the Ohio. Uh, you know, I, I've heard some other things I can't quite talk about, that there are some other finds out there which will be popping up. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be some talk on the, uh, the Indianapolis was recently found. That was a, uh, a World War II show that that's uh, a tremendous story behind that wreck going down. Tremendous story that one. I mean, kind of stuff gives you nightmares, too. Okay, I mean, a really bad deal with the Indianapolis going down. Uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to have, you know, lots of good presentations at these upcoming shows. So the dates that Matt gave you, I'd, I'd put them on your calendar. Know, uh, start putting us on road trips and, and, get, and get, you know, you and 16 of your best eye buddies in the van out there. So, let's do it.
0: So some ways you can keep in contact with the show, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed, uh, on Twitter at scuba obsessed, and we have our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, and from there you can click on and link to all sorts of resources we have there, and thanks to Jim Billings for keeping up on the show notes. So if you ever want to go back and check out any of the older episodes, you can do it there. We have links to them. Uh, and also we could use your support. We're coming up to that time of year. We got to start renewing some services to, uh, get us prepared for 2018. So if you can look for the Patreon links on the website, click on over to them. And if you can give us just the price of one of those fancy foo-foo drinks, you're probably drinking, uh, or a nice mixed drink, uh, you know, give us a little bit of support and keep us going for another year. And uh, I'd like to thank those uh, supporters that we currently have as well. Um, Mac, do you have a safety tip?
1: Well, actually, it's uh, more of a are you awareness type item. It's called Who is on the Surface Manning the Boat? And this is also I included into the uh, club newsletter. Many boaters use their boats not just for cruising or fishing, which we know, all right? Most of, a lot of them use it as a platform to launch fun water sports. And that can be swimming, snorkeling, or wakeboarding. And regions blessed with clear water, interesting underwater terrain, abundant sea life, good reefs that we haven't seen before, freshwater reefs. And scuba diving from a boat is also a popular pastime. But this adventurous underwater sport requires training and experience, not only for scuba divers, but for the operator of the boat. Now, we often see scuba divers who ask a friend with little or no boating experience to run their boat while they dive. But are you being safe? Does the boat operator know how to use the VHF radio? Do they know how and who to call for assistance? Do they know how to to restart the engines and go after a diver far away from the boat? So those are little questions. So tip number one, you should always dive from a boat that has an experienced boater at the helm, whether you own the boat or belong to the operator. Tip number two is... Dive or diver down flag is an essential safety tool to have aboard the boat and have a means to fly it high or from the highest point on the boat. And also remember to take it down before you go underway. Tip number three does the boat operator know what a safety sausage is? And you know, we know it's an inflatable orange wand, four or five feet in length, that so when a diver surfaces, it can be held up so other boats won't hit them and their own boat can locate them more easily. Especially if they came up to the surface far away from the boat. Another right. tip is Does the boat operator know what to do if the boat is anchored on a wreck? A diver surfaces a long way from the boat, but the others haven't. Has this been discussed? And what response actions are planned? And are they known by everyone? Another tip is staying on top of the weather. So the weather turned and a squall hits 10 minutes into the dive. The surface operator does not have a recall device and the anchor is dragging. Will the boat operator panic because he has no clue what the divers are going to do? I don't know. You tell me. Another one. Does the operator know about local currents, riptides, high traffic areas? When the divers are in the water doing a drift dive, and it can be ocean or river, will the boat operator lose them because he doesn't understand how to maintain positioning with the divers in a current? An example that we ourselves have used is looking for shark teeth. You know, we were free diving because he dropped off people all the way down the line. Another item is... Are the divers on the boat experienced? Do they have experience exiting the boats or re-entering them? Does the operator of the boat know how to assist divers using the boat ladder or platform? And will they need operator's assistance, especially if the seas got rough? Items to consider whenever you're having somebody man your boat. And I'm sure there's a lot more that we can go run through, but I thought those are pretty pertinent. Well, you know, pertinent.
0: Yeah, well, the, the the first thing that comes to mind is, did you even bother to leave somebody up on the boat?
2: Well, are you not talking to me?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we've all done that, and uh, again, a disclaimer like we're talking about just because we do yeah. it doesn't mean that somebody else should. Uh, but the, there's the, it's frequent that uh, you know especially if the we're on a like a small zodiac and there's three of us and you know it's a it's a calm day, you know we. Yeah, you know, we'll we've we've gone and dove and not had anybody up on the boat, but uh, it's a risk that we've calculated and taken and uh, you know we've got experience with anchoring. That's that's one thing that uh, you know we could we could add on to that is just making sure that the, the the you're using the proper amount, the proper type of anchor for the boat and you've got the proper scope on that anchor and chain. Uh, sometimes you see even in in fairly calm weather, if you don't have enough scope out, the the wake of another boat can dislodge your boat, and you can start it can start to shift and move.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't think that a lot of people are using uh, you know enough anchor line. You know, uh, you know most people us are using one of those uh, Danforth style anchors, mm-hmm. yeah, sheet metal type hooks that dig in. But it's recommended that you have out a minimum of five times your depth on one of those. Uh, just so the flukes can dig in properly. And yeah. that's quite a bit of line. You know, you when you're talking, you know, going out to the Havana, you know, being 60 feet deep, you know, then you're talking about 300 feet of line out. Yeah. And, and it, nobody does that, you know, but uh, I don't, I, I'm not recommending this to any of our listeners, but one thing that I will often do if I leave my boat unattended is I will run a reel to the line, to, to the boat. Uh, you know, I've got a 300-foot-long cave reel, which I will actually put on the boat rail, uh, or sometimes I'll get, we'll get to the uh, anchor line. It depends upon how well secured I have things, too. And that way, I, you know, I learned that from, you know, experience. I know Rick and I were diving the, uh, stuff, the Diamond Lake wreck one year, and the looked well and intended. I had hooked the, uh, the reel to the anchor line. And we're down there, and it's my first dive on the wreck, and he's showing, giving me the tour down there, and I'm like, you know, I grab it, Kirk, we got to go. And he's like, he ignores me. He's about to keep on diving. I'm like, Kirk, we got to go up, you know. And he's like, ah, let's go this way. The wreck's over here, you know. And I, I showed him my reel, and the reel's just playing out as fast as it can because the boat's dragging across the lake. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, the anchor ended up pulling into a great big weed bed because we couldn't catch that thing. I mean, that thing that thing was really, really moving. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, uh that was an interesting dive. So yeah, your your, your boat can take off on you. do you know, be ready for it. We're in an inland lake, so we wouldn't have been very far from the shore no matter what. Yeah. But you no, know, you that's something you want to do when you're 20 miles offshore. Yeah. So,
1: well, Kevin, do well, you uh, go ahead? I was just going to say the other aspect is we normally go down, we set the anchor first, man down. The problem often is though, as everybody comes up, and how do you know who the last man is to unset the anchor? Those are the other questions that you should resolve on the surface before everybody goes down. Yeah.
2: And that's been why a lot of anchors have been left at the wrecks. even have been out there and recovered at <laughs> the next side. So I won't mention any names, but there's been a number of us who posted on the Facebook page like, Hey, next time you're going out to the Ann Arbor <laughs> or you're going out to the to the Havana, uh, there's a wreck down there's a There's a Navy anchor sitting, I think, on the south side. That's mine, <laughs> you know. So yeah, but so we've we've seen those posts. Some of us have even made those posts. So yeah.
0: Well, Kevin, do you have a wreck of the week you want to talk about?
2: Yes, uh, you know, uh, i been doing a lot of deep wrecks lately, and I'm going to do a nice, uh, easy shallow wreck, which has got a lot to see. A lot to see here tonight. We're going to talk about the Monahansa. This is a
0: shipwreck in the
2: uh, Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. This is an area where actually there are, there are two. Two sanctuaries overlap. You also have in the, uh, Michigan Underwater Preserve System. You have the, uh, you know, the, the Thunder Bay Preserve there. The, uh, Mount lies in a whopping 18 feet of water. Uh, it is a little ways offshore. It kind of lies along a chain of islands. So it's a pretty good haul to get out there. But once you're there, you have a beautiful, you know, gravel and sand bottom. Uh, you know, I dove this, uh, four years ago and you know, even on a blustery day, you know, they had 30 foot visibility. Um, you know, you, you go out there on a nice calm day, I'm sure that you have twice that out there. You know, because of being so shallow, you have all kinds of natural light and, sh- and shading, shading, and it's it's a it's a beautiful wreck to dive. Uh, it have, probably has the most photographed propeller in the Great Lakes. Um, you know, a huge, approximately 12 foot diameter prop. Um, you know, sitting down there on the on the stern of the boat. The boat's in kind of rough shape, as most ships are at this show. This is one which burned the tank. Uh, I'm reading this excerpt off the uh, Thunder Bay, NOAA.gov. Um, built as the double-deck bulk freighter Ira Owen, the ship was re-Christian in 1892. Ten years later, it was rebuilt as a single-deck lumber carrier. On November 23, 1907, the ship burned to the water's edge Thunder Bay Island. Most of the crew lost their personal belongings, and some suffered minor burns, that was, but there's no loss of life because the ship was near the, the island's life-saving station. The island's life-saving life station. Today, the Monaghan set lies in three sections. The stern portion has hull features, propeller, and shaft in places, and the boiler is nearby. Uh, now, the boiler is huge. You know, It looks like about the size of a, of a short school bus, and I want to say it comes within about four feet of the surface. Uh, this is a wreck you can snorkel. You know, you can snorkeling it. You can dive down and touch the propeller if you're a good a good swimmer. Same with the uh, with the boiler. You know, there is, a, you know, some history with this one. This is genuinely a wreck. It wasn't a scuttle because it, it burned It burned there at the island. There was no loss of life. Uh, but, you know, a lot of fish here, lots to be seen. You know, uh, you do have quite a bit that that survived the burning. It did burn to the water's edge, but, you know, you do have the ribs and the keel, you uh, the engine, lots and lots of machinery down there. I'm really surprised that more wasn't that this boat wasn't salvaged just because, uh, you know, it's only 18 feet of water. And this would have been a real easy picking to get the propeller off of there. In fact, I know in more recent times there have been talk of people who wanted to collect the propeller off this boat. But uh, it's a nice, easy, novice dive in 18 feet of water. Lots of fish. Really cool ship. Uh, numbers here are on the uh, NOAA website. I've got a uh, north 45 degrees, 1 minute, 0.996 minutes. This is in uh, degrees, minutes, decimal. West, 83 degrees, 11 minutes, 0.988 minutes. So very cool, Breck. i on a handset. You can get out there and take a look.
0: Very cool. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Well, once again, thank everybody who was in the chat room Uh, Do you guys have anything you want to plug before we uh, put an end to this?
1: I'll put the upcoming events in your calendar so you can't say, whoops, I forgot about that one. That's the major one. Okay. How how about you, Kevin?
2: I want to encourage everyone to uh, support the local diving shop. We always like to get those deals online, but those deals online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks or service your regulators. I'll support your local libraries. There is a wealth of information there, which is only going to be found there. You're not going to find it online. So do everything you can to keep them around. Great people there.
0: Very good. Well, I do, before we get into the joke, I do have a scuba riddle, a little bit of a twist. This one came from the Reader's Digest. And uh, let me get up to the part. So I, I've got this, the answer highlighted. I need to go to the other section. And the the riddle is, it says, you walk into a charred and salt water doused coastal forest. In a clearing, you come upon a corpse of a man wearing a scuba suit surrounded by ashes, but without any hint of burn on him. How exactly did he get there?
1: Do you want the answer?
0: I have a feeling that you know it. Uh,
1: (laughs) Is this the one where the guy was actually scooped up in a water carrier and dumped on a forest fire?
0: You got it. That's it exactly.
1: And truer, you know, fiction, you know. Yeah, true it was stranger a... than fiction.
0: Yeah.
2: Wow. Okay. <laughs> what, a, what a way to go. Ouch.
1: Yeah, scuba diving without a, or skydiving without a parachute, not too much fun. No. Hmm. I do have, a, 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 not a joke, but a question for you. Certainly. What's Mummy's favorite type music?
0: Oh, I I can't think of it. What well, what is it? Rap. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You, <laughs> uh huh.
1: Oh. Why? Hey, I had to put something in there. It was Halloweenish almost.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's let's go ahead and and finish this off. I don't know if he'll be quite as groan worthy as Max a little bit there, but uh, let's give it a shot. A pirate and his parrot were adrift in a lifeboat, following a dramatic escape from a valiant battle. While rummaging through the boat's provision, the pirate stumbled across an old lamp. Secretly hoping a genie would appear, he rubbed the lamp vigorously. To his amazement, the genie came forth. This particular genie, however, stated he could only deliver one wish, not the standard three. Without giving any thought to the matter, the pirate blurted out, Make the entire ocean into rum! The genie clapped his hands with a deafening crash, and immediately the entire sea turned into the finest rum ever sampled by mortals. Simultaneously, the genie vanished. Only the gentle lapping of rum in the hall broke the stillness, as the two considered the circumstances. The parrot looked disgustedly at the pirate, and after a tension filled moment spoke, Now you've done it! We're gonna have to pee in the boat!
1: I like that one.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alright.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Alright. <laughs>
1: I'll save Halloween joke for next week.
0: Okay. Yeah, we'll, we've, we've got just a little bit of time. It's, we'll be here before we know it though. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
2: And have a good time doing it.
0: And completed. Yay, there we go. Cool.